Last week, we began a new series of messages in Paul's letter uh, of 1 Corinthians that we've titled, Your Part in Building a Healthy Church in a Pagan World. Uh, here we are in a pagan world. We want to build a healthy church, and every person who's a part of the church has their part to play in that. Last week, we looked at the first 17 verses of this letter and discovered that our identity is in Christ, this identity is by grace alone, and that our unity as Christians is based upon our identity in Christ through grace. Now, uh, we also gave a little background to the letter. Uh, we noted that the Greek city of Corinth was destroyed by the Romans, but the rebuilding process as a Roman city started around 44 BC. In Paul's day, there may have been as many as 200,000 people living there. Uh, and I know it's hard to believe, but I actually showed a couple of maps last week for you to look at. Uh, for a long time, Corinth was known for its immorality. To call someone a Corinthian was to call them immoral. It was also known for its commercial character because of the two harbors and the uh, idea of there, there were lots of business, lots of commerce, longshoremen, laborers. Uh, every two years, important uh, athletic games were conducted at nearby Isthmia, and so there were athletes. There were worship centers for the gods. It had a Roman upper class. The emperor Claudius had kicked the Jews out of Rome, and so there were Jewish refugees that had made their way to Corinth. Two important ones for us were Priscilla and Aquila. Paul was a tent maker for these refugees who had made their way there along with Priscilla and Aquila. And then later he wrote this letter. Um, <clears throat> I would say that Corinth was probably a combination of Hollywood, Las Vegas, and New York City. Uh, one important characteristic was that it had all these orators. People would go around giving orations, and people were moved by the eloquence with wi and power with which these orators spoke. Uh, in the church, Paul had discovered and was writing back to Corinth there were some divisions in the church. Divisions over personalities. We talked about that in verses 10 through 17 last week. Uh, people were saying, well, I follow Paul, a wonderful personality within the Christian faith. Another person was saying, I follow Apollos, another remarkable teacher in the church. And others were saying, I follow Cephas, another word for the apostle Peter, and then there were the super spiritual people who said, I, you know, kind of put their hands on their lapels and said, I follow Christ. <laughs> the point is that there was divisions in the church. So the question that we come to now in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 18 to 31 is, why should there not be division over personality? Why should the church be unified? And the answer is because of the power of, and wisdom of the cross of Christ. The power and wisdom of the cross. Because at the cross, there is a personal as well as a church-wide humility that comes 
through embracing the cross. So, let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Paul has just commented on this division, and then he says, Christ, in verse 17, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent with words of eloquent wisdom, not like those orators in Corinth, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And now we come to our section this morning. For the word of the cross <clears throat> is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Please have a seat. Why should there not be division over personality? Because the power and wisdom of the cross. Let's look for a moment here at the miraculous wisdom and power of the cross. Verse 18, Paul says that the preaching of the cross is not for those who want to impress others with their eloquence. You know, believe it or not, there are actually people who fool themselves in thinking that they should get into Christian ministry in order to impress others by the eloquence of their words. Paul's saying, no, 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 the preaching of the cross is not for those who want to impress others with their eloquence. This empties the cross of its power, verse 17. We preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. If you can explain why a ministry is successful using words other than the cross, you do not have a cross-centered ministry, 
no matter how much you may protest that you do. One of the things that is an important test of the truthfulness or the fidelity of a church to the preaching of the cross is, can outsiders explain the success of the ministry? Because if you can explain it in sociological or human terms or there's a person who's particularly gifted or eloquent or what have you, then you do not have biblical Christianity. The cross is folly to those who are perishing. They can't understand it. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. The cross is folly to those whom God has not awakened to its power and wisdom. And you see, most people, and sometimes even Christians can fall prey to this, most people see Christianity as activity. Uh, Do this, don't do this, do this other thing, make sure you don't do that thing. That's not Christianity. Christianity is is faith in the cross of Christ to save us from our sins. This has no attraction respecting human wisdom. You know, human wisdom always wants to solve the equation, figure out how to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, blessed now and forever. That's human wisdom, trying to solve that equation It's not the cross. That's not Christianity. The cross teaches us that we are hopeless and helpless and must surrender our will to Jesus. Now, in verses 19 through 21, Paul wants to, uh, God wants to prove to us that our plans for blessing ourselves now and forever don't work. He wants to show us that only the cross saves us. That's what's happening here in verses 19 through 21. Now, in verse 19, though, he's going to illustrate this lesson from a story in 8th century B.C. Judah. This verse is a quote from Isaiah 29. Now, this is something largely lost on people, in fact, Most New Testament commentaries skip this important principle. The principle is this. Whenever the New Testament writers quote a section of the Old Testament, they don't want you just to look at that little quote. They're saying to you, go back to the Old Testament And read the entire context and capture the argument that's being made there because this is an illustration of something that's really important. Okay? So, I debated whether I would do this, but I decided that you were ready for strong meat, not milk. So, what you're about to get here is not milk, okay? It's strong meat. Put your finger here at 1 Corinthians 1 and go back to Isaiah chapter 29. And I'm going to try to trace the argument that is being made in Isaiah 29 
and so that you can understand the illustration that Paul is making. Isaiah, in Isaiah 29, is writing about the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib of Assyria. He was the great king of Assyria. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 29, verses 4 through 7, that Jerusalem will be surrounded. It will be in a hopeless state. And then, out of the blue, God will effect a grand rescue and save Judah at the very last second when all hope had been erased. Look at Isaiah 29, beginning at verse 4. You will be brought low, from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech shall be bowed down, and your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. This is the description of a people about to be destroyed. That's what Judah was. That's how Hezekiah felt. They were surrounded by the Assyrian army. Verse 5, but the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust. And the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, Ariel probably a reference to the Lion of Judah, a reference to Jerusalem, fight against Jerusalem. All that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream a vision of the night. It'll be like, wow, did that just happen? And in fact, that's exactly how it was in Second Kings we read. And I love how the uh, New American Standard describes it. Sennacherib has Jerusalem surrounded. Hezekiah lays out his prayer before the Lord. And then the night comes and the angel of the Lord comes and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And the New American Standard says, and behold, when men woke up the next morning, behold, they were all dead. We're dead! You know, that's just kind of a clever way of saying it. The fact is that God wiped out the Assyrian army right at the last second. They had no chance of recovery. God did a miracle. Um, by the way, Sennacherib wrote about his siege of Jerusalem, and it's on a beautiful little prism where he describes how he had Hezekiah, king of Judah, trapped like a bird in a cage. That's how he describes it. He kind of omits the part about the angel of the Lord destroying 185,000 of his troops and him having to withdraw in shame. He doesn't write about that, but you can find that prism on display at the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. You can see it. It's there. Okay? Pretty remarkable. Anyway, the point is, Isaiah is writing about the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib. He says Jerusalem's going to be surrounded in a hopeless state and God's going to do this rescue. But even in this last second rescue, the wrong lessons are learned. Does that ever happen to you? God does something amazing in your life and you learn the wrong lesson from it. That's what happens to Judah. Judah actually starts believing that they deserved the rescue. Well, look at us. Look how great we are. God must really think we're something because he rescued. In fact, God blinds them to the truth so that they cannot see that this salvation came only by the Lord acting alone to save them. Look at verse 9. 
of Isaiah 29. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. You're ignorant. You're unconscious of God's, what God's really up to. And has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, <clears throat> the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. You see, they've learned the wrong lesson, and now God has blinded them to the truth, so they cannot see that this salvation came only by the Lord acting to save them. Well, what happens next? God explains why he has blinded them to the truth of this last-minute rescue. Their hearts do not run to God. They pretend to run to him, but they are far, far from God in reality. So God will put to death their wisdom and hide the discernment of the times from them. Look at verse 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In other words, it's just according to human standards. There's no real vital relationship here. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And you're thinking, oh good, he's going to do another amazing blessing miracle? No, no, no. What's the miracle? The wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. And that's the verse that Paul is quoting from in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. They're pretenders. Their hearts do not run to God. They pretend to run to him, but they're far, far from God in reality. And whenever you have a church in division over personalities, that's the problem. And so God gives them over to pride. Look at verse 15 of Isaiah 29. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? God gives his, these people over to pride, the pride of presuming that they know the times better than God himself. And boy, what a picture of our own times, right? Where people think that they can form their own reality even down to the very case of their own gender. They say, I can make my own reality. God hiding the truth from people. And yet, there is a promise that one day there will be good news. There will be the right and true worship of the living God. Look at verse 17 of Isaiah 29. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, 
and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Skip down to verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. There's a promise. One day there's going to be good news. There will be the right and true worship of the living God. In the meantime, does Judah awaken from her slumber? Does she return to the Lord? No. Instead, they think that they are practical. Have you ever had that happen where people say, yeah, 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 I know the gospel, but what we need to do here in this day and age is to be practical. We got to face facts and be practical, we say. Well, look at chapter 30 of Isaiah, verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt." This practical plan that Judah has, you know what it is? Instead of looking to the Lord for salvation, they go, you know, who can, who can we make an alliance with that can help us fight against these crazy Assyrians? Oh, we know. Let's go to Egypt and make an alliance with them. They'll help us beat off the Assyrians. It's a plan, but as the Lord says, not his plan. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and look again at this quote. When Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14 here in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 1, he is meaning all of this that we've just talked about in Isaiah 29. He's saying there are only two paths. God's plan of salvation and human effort to achieve its own blessing. God says that he actively works to destroy human wisdom and discernment about these matters. He did that in 8th century B.C. Judah. He's doing it right now in 1st century Corinth. And guess what? He continues to do that right here and now among us. I have never seen a time where the discernment of believers is at an all-time low. Why? We have lost sight of the cross of Christ, friends. And we're casting about to find our Egypt, some political or economic solution. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Is it any wonder why the church lacks unity? Verse 20, much like verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul now asks a series of questions designed to destroy this idea of human effort. Whom will you depend upon? God causes the wise man to disappear. Where's the one who's wise? What authority will you trust 
you know, it was thought of in those days, you trust the scribes. God causes the scribe to disappear. What arguments will you embrace? First century Corinth was filled with all these orators that debated all the big issues of the day. And yet Paul says, by asking, where is the debater of this age? What arguments will you embrace? God makes the debater to disappear. Verse 21, what has God done in his world? In his wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God, in fact, has made foolish the wisdom of this world's plan for human blessing. God's wisdom actually, listen to this, God's wisdom actually hides God from those who would seek God by their own wisdom. God's wisdom hides God from those who would seek God by their own wisdom. Instead, God is pleased to save those who believe by the folly of what was preached. And what was preached? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm about to say something crass and crude here. It is because I'm quoting someone, okay? So, it's not Scott that says this, it's John Calvin. John Calvin, in his, uh, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, has a very uh, vivid way of describing this contrast between God's plan for human blessing and our own plans for human blessing. Here's how he says it. Man can no sooner reason his way to salvation. He calls it the mysteries of God. Man can no sooner reason his way to salvation than an ass can appreciate musical harmony. Now that's a vivid illustration, isn't it? For example, if next Sunday when we have our concert here and we just have the, a row of donkeys filling of several pews, leaning over to one another, braying, oh, isn't that beautiful harmony? We would be like, whoa, that's weird, right? And that's the point that Calvin is making. He's saying we can't reason our way to salvation. We can't reason our way to human blessing. It is only through the cross that we can be blessed now and forever. Now, people will not get the proofs that they seek, there are some people who say, yeah, I'll look for God, but only if he can prove it to me. Verse 22 tells us God's not going to give us the proofs we seek. Look at verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Jews want signs that God is at work, that it's God's way of salvation. But, you know, the New Testament is filled with stories of sign after sign given, but they didn't see it. Do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 where the, the rich man has died and he says, send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. They, it's told him, they got Abraham and the prophets, or Moses and the prophets, listen to them. He goes, no, no, no. If someone goes from back, comes back from the dead, they will hear it. And the response they will not believe even if someone comes back from the dead. And that's a little foreshadowing, isn't it? A foreshadowing of our Savior 
who gave the greatest sign that anybody could ever give a nation. (laughs) He was the Messiah. He dies with with a sign above his cross saying, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And three days later, he rises from the dead and they don't believe the sign. Jews seek signs. Think of another story also having to do with a man named Lazarus in John chapter 11. He's, Lazarus is raised from the dead after four days of being in the grave. Jesus raises him from the dead. And what is the response of Jewish leadership? We've got to figure out how to way to kill Lazarus again. <laughs> think, of the, think of the folly of that. I mean, no matter how many times they put him to death, what could Jesus do? They could raise him from the dead every, kill him a thousand times, you know. Jews seek signs. Greeks want wisdom. They want a philosopher. They want an orator. Now, nobody ever taught like Jesus did, but that didn't keep people from hating him. Here's the point. If a person is unwilling to believe, no amount of signs, no brilliance of reasoning will convince that person. And so in verses 23 to 25, Paul, in contrast to the miracle workers and orators of his day, does one simple thing. He preaches Christ crucified. Look at verse 23. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. These next five words are the critical words of the text. But we preach Christ crucified. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. They believe that is weakness and a curse. A cross is a sign of weakness and a curse. It's folly to Gentiles. They believe that the cross is foolish. Verse 24, but to everyone who's called... There is an effectual call where God taps his finger on a person and says, you are mine. When you hear from God this way, you turn around and you cannot turn away or turn back. That's true wisdom. That is true power. Why is that? Because verse 25, even the things regarded by people as utter foolishness about God and his plan are wiser than men's wisdom. And even things regarded by people as utter weakness about God and His plan are stronger than men's power. Now, what are some ways that we should apply this miraculous wisdom and power of the cross? First, um, I want to talk for a moment with you about apologetics, that is the defense of the Christian faith. Apologetics has its place, and I think primarily in the confirmation of the faith for those who already believe. It also can be a helpful in beginning conversations with people who are lost. But don't think, do not ever think, that if only people had the right argumentation, the lost would be saved. If only we had the right arguments, people would come to Christ. Don't ever think that. And the reason why that's done a disservice to the church is that what it has done is muted most believers from sharing their faith. 
It causes people to say, well, I don't know all the answers to all these questions that people ask about, you know, any number of questions that the skeptic asks about Christianity. I guess I shouldn't talk because I'll leave that to the experts that know how to give those kinds of answers. Listen, people aren't going to be saved by our powerful argumentation. Never had somebody come to Christ by my saying to them, well, you know, here's the three proofs of the resurrection. Here's why the creation was in a six-day period of time. They go, you know what? You're right. I'm going to trust Jesus. That doesn't happen. This is a spiritual issue, not an issue of moral reasoning. And so for us who are believers, our job is those five words, but we preach Christ crucified. And don't worry whether you got all the answers or not. Now, it doesn't, it's not wrong to go research the answers and help people and ask others for help on that. But we need to be careful to recognize that the salvation of souls is not worked out on the plane of reason. That's not where it's worked out. In fact, if we try to build Christian ministry on the foundation of our eloquence, the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. That's what he says in verse 17. He doesn't preach with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, that doesn't mean that we dumb down the message of the cross or that we purposefully make the presentation of the cross uninteresting or uneloquent or, or uh, you know, lousy, but it does mean that we believers should be simple people. Just proclaim the cross. When we focus on the cross of Christ, we lose sight of the personality cults that were dividing the church at Corinth. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. That all sheds away when we look to the cross and its power. Now, there's a natural humility that comes when we abandon all hope of bringing ourselves blessing now and forever. We fall at the cross, and that's what these next few verses are about. The personal and corporate humility that comes from embracing the cross. There's a personal humility that comes when we embrace the cross, but there's a, a humility that comes to the whole church when as a church, together as brothers and sisters, we embrace the cross. Paul, in verse 26, asks the Corinthians to consider their calling from God. Not many were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And those are the three ways that people possessed value in the Roman world. By their wisdom, by their power or authority, or by the circumstances of their birth or adoption that made them a part of nobility. The point here is to say that none of us can get to heaven on our own. We are incapable of helping God save us. There's some people who want to present the gospel as, God's done what he's done, now you do what you do. No! Salvation is completely by the Lord. And we run and fall before him in, abs in absolute humility to say, save us by the power of your cross, save us. Verse 27, 
God chose. But God chose. And here, there's a couple of things that we need to think of. He's talking about both the cross, as you look at the verses in front of verse 27, and then he's talking about us being chosen as we look at the verses following verse 27. So verse 27 is kind of a hinge saying God chose both the cross, the means of our salvation, and he chose us as his people for his own glory. Notice, he chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. The cross is foolish. God's people are foolish. He chose what is weak. The cross is weak in the world's eyes. God's people are weak in the world's eyes to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. You know, the cross of Christ is not naturally attractive despite the fact that nowadays we use it as a piece of jewelry. No Roman citizen could be crucified. The cross was a place of evil corruption, torture, abysmal rejection. This past week I have spent, uh, I don't even know how much time, but I've just been listening to it over and over. Just one song from Handel's Messiah. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Notice verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, speaking first of the cross, but now even of God's people, the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. What does that mean? God chose the lowly and despised, the nothings in this world, to bring to nothing the things in people who think they are something. That's what God has chosen. God saves this way in order to bring us all down. Catch it, to bring us all down. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No human being. The goal is not to bring down the rich, the wise, and the powerful in order to raise up the disenfranchised in order to raise up the foolish and the weak and the nothings. No, no, no. That's not the goal. <laughs> the goal is not some equal opportunity thing here. The goal is to cut us all down to size. All of us are nothing so that all of us may boast in the presence of God. Do you see it there in verse 29? No human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of God, from God himself, we are in Christ Jesus. Salvation is not from ourselves. It is from the Lord. He opens our eyes. 
he allows us to see reality. So that Jesus Christ then, not our favorite Christian personalities, Jesus Christ then becomes for us wisdom from God. And this wisdom has three aspects to it here. Righteousness, that's our standing before God. We stand before God not in our sin, but in the righteousness of Christ. He sees us in Christ's perfection. That's wisdom from God. Became wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification. You might say, well, I can hardly believe that God sees me as righteous because I'm still sinning. Ah, did you know that God's still up to stuff in your life? And that's sanctification. He is at work right now in shaping you to become more and more like Jesus. That too is wisdom from God. And then redemption. One day when we are in the presence of God, we will be the redeemed people for himself. That's wisdom. A standing before God of righteousness, a relationship of growing toward God in sanctification, and the ultimate day of redemption when we are in the presence of God forever. So in verse 31, we come to another Old Testament quotation. This one is from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Paul is reminding us of days 115 years after Isaiah when Judah was destroyed by Babylon. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 22, we see a horrible description of that Babylonian destruction. Dead bodies like dung upon an open field, like sheaves without a reaper, no one gathers the harvest. All is lost. What happens when you lose everything? What do you do? The believer gets a heightened focus on God. That's what a believer does. That's why after this description of the bodies and a, like dung on a field, there's no harvest, we get verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who works steadfast love and justice and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I take delight, declares the Lord. When we are stripped of everything but the cross of Christ, then we come to a place of genuine blessing. You know, in Jeremiah, it says in the next verse, verse 25, behold, the days are coming when, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. This gets us to application today. There are people who pretend to be long to the people of God. In Old Testament days, they took the sign of belonging to God, circumcision, but they weren't really the people of God, <clears throat> circumcised merely in the flesh. They took the outward ceremony of pretended faith. And even today, there are people who take the outward ceremonies of pretended faith in Jesus. 
oh, they'll maybe get baptized or they'll take part in the Lord's table and they'll talk some kind of talk of being a believer, but they know in their heart they are not a believer in Jesus. I've seen that most frequently worked out in, uh, when I meet with a couple for premarital counseling and one of the couple is a believer and the other one is not. And I can tell that the one who's the believer really wants to get married to the person that's not a believer. And so they've tried to coach up the person who's not a believer so that when they talk to Pastor Scott, they can fool Pastor Scott into believing that they're a believer. Sometimes they fool me, sometimes they don't. But that's not just happening with premarital people. That's happening all over the world. And even in this church. boasting only in the cross. When you get stripped of everything, where will your trust be? Will your trust be in Donald Trump or Joe Biden or your favorite news outlet? I have been stunned, brokenhearted actually, by how Christians have fragmented over American politics. I want to shout, same team! Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right now, whether you know it or not, we are in the twilight of the American experiment. It remains to be seen whether or not God will revive the nation. He has done it before. He did it to Israel in the past. He has done it even in America. But the only real issue facing America is not political or economic. It is spiritual. I am prayerful for such a revival, even as I am skeptical because I see no evidence presently of such a revival coming. But whether it comes or not, can we stop with dividing ourselves as believers over these various political solutions? I fear we are being played by those who want to rile us up You know, they are raising lots of money for themselves from their followers by their eloquent words. Whether revival comes or not, the only message and the only answer is the power of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. As many of you know, my mother went to be with the Lord last Sunday morning. There were a lot of things that she lost along the path. She lost her husband, her health, her ability to drive, her house, her health some more, her mobility, and her appetite. I shared a bit of this at the funeral on Thursday. She suffered in the slow decline of things taken away. But as her life grew smaller, it also grew larger. She developed a passion for reading Charles Spurgeon. She grew in evangelism as she longed for the residents and workers at her assisted living place to know Jesus. She grew in her love of prayer and her interest in heaven and eternal things. In fact, she remarked to me something like this, for most of my life, my attention was on the things I needed to do. 
raise a family, make meals, keep a house, love people. It was right that I did things like that. But now the Lord had given her a moment in time to focus her attention really on one thing, heaven and the glory of God in the face of Christ. My friends, this morning, there should not be division in the church over personalities because of the power and wisdom of the cross of Christ. And at that cross comes both personal and corporate humility. As it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we are sobered by the fact that we have taken our attention off of the cross. We have allowed things to divide us. We've allowed personalities to consume us. We have taken our attention on the things of this world that we call practical, that we think are somehow wisdom or our power when really they are folly and emptiness. May we boast, Lord, only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we preach the cross of Christ. May every one of us who are believers proclaim the cross of Christ and not worry about whether or not we have all the answers at the moment to the questions people have. Let us boldly proclaim the cross in its power to save people from their sins. Lord, if there's anyone here who's a pretend believer, I pray that you would open their eyes and call them to yourself right now. That they would turn from their sin and truly believe in Jesus to forgive them of their sin, trusting what he did at the cross to pay for that sin. Believing in the resurrection that they too will rise in the last day. May we take our confidence in nothing but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.